Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Companies podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each week, our expert arborists share advice on seasonal tree care, how to make your trees thrive, arborists' favorite trees, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more, because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. He was the first guest ever on the Talking Trees podcast, and since then has been on many times. Uh, Eric Countryman is a district manager for the East Pittsburgh office of the Davy Tree Expert Company. Eric and I also work together on a local radio show. Eric, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Doug. I think we're uh, on the radio again this Sunday, I think, right? I was going to check with you on that, make sure you're going to get up early. Oh, yeah, I got the alarm set. All right. You know, uh, today's topic is fire blight. I don't know a lot about it, except that when I hear that word, it sounds devastating. Am, am I right in thinking that's a really bad one to get? It's a very bad disease. Uh, it is actually a bacterial infection. And you see it a lot in pear trees, apple trees, quince, uh, tony aster, anything in that kind of rosacea family. Uh, it's very common in those. Uh, I think in, in Pittsburgh here and in this sort of area, we see it uh, predominantly in uh, Bradford pears and calorie pears. So in an ornamental setting, but it is also very devastating to apple and pear crops in an agricultural setting. What does it look like? So it presents uh, like very quickly. You can see it when you're even driving down the road, but you'll see a, you know, a Bradford pear that looks in every other way perfectly normal, except you'll see ends that are all kind of dead, shrunken, and have what's called a shepherd's hook, where you kind of see the ends start to curl around like a shepherd's hook. And it just, it flags like that. And it's very obvious that that's what, that that's fire blight. There's really not much else that causes that. Is there any other, is there any time of the year when it's more prevalent than others when you start to see it, or could you see it at any point in the season? It presents in the late spring because it starts from an infection of the flower. So the tree will open up its flowers in the first one to three days of that flower opening through water splashing or through pollinators this bacteria is transferred from cankers and sores on the tree into those flowers, which then go back into the stems. And then that's when you see the, as the infection progresses in the few weeks after you start seeing the shepherd's hooks appear. And prognosis when we start to see that on a tree? If you've got one or two branches that you're seeing that are flagging, you grab your pruners, you sterilize with a 10% bleach solution, and you get as far below the infection as you can. So, I mean, if you can go two feet, three feet, get as far below as you can and prune it out and get it away from the trees that are, you know, that tree or any trees like it um, and dispose of that infected material. If it's presenting all over the tree, it's not really practical. And probably at that point, the, the sores and the bacteria have infected so far deep into the wood that you're not going to be able to pull it out. So I know it's a case by case basis, but let's say you come upon an, an apple tree, you see a little bit of fire blight. Wouldn't, would you want to take the whole limb off? Is that, you know, go 
all the way back to the trunk just to be sure? Or I guess it depends on the tree. It depends on the tree. It depends how much you're seeing of the infection. You can also kind of look at it. Sometimes you can see cankers on the branch below where the infection is and try to get, like I said, 12, 18 inches even below that. Um, I don't even mean you have to whack half the tree off, but um, you want to get it below. And then again, you make one cut, you sterilize. If you have to make two cuts, you sterilize in between. You do not want to spread this around. And then when you're finished, you sterilize so you don't take it to another tree. Anything preventative we can do? So in an agricultural setting, what they they say, and again, it's you can only do so much because of the you know, rain, it can be a problem. But in those early days of flowering, don't overhead water. Um, again, we don't overhead water our trees, but it does in an agricultural setting, it can be different. In an ornamental setting, um, there are some uh, it, it limited use of like a copper sulfite-based uh, fungicide that can show to manage or suppress the... Uh, extended activity of the disease, but it's not going to cure. There's no cure whatsoever. Um, so if you have a, if you have a heavily infected tree, but you've got three or four more, sometimes these pears are you know, planted in a row, get the, the really bad one out totally and get it away. And maybe you can save, but to, if you leave the, the bad one and keep spraying all of them, you're never going to have a chance of, of getting ahead of it. Well, from doing this podcast, I know how much arborists hate those pear trees. So <laughs> <laughs> they're not, not good quality. And here in Pennsylvania, I believe they're now on the invasive species, do not yeah. plant, do not buy list. So, yeah. Yet they're still going into developments every every day, I think. Yeah. I mean, and it, like you said, it, it's, it, we see, I see that mostly in an ornamental uh, context in, in those ornamental pears, but it is a problem in apple trees. It's a problem in hawthorns. Uh, it can be in all of those, uh, of those family. It's just pears seems to be one of the most susceptible to it. Could I buy a tree at a nursery and not know it and it would be infected? And then when I plant it, I start to see fire blight. I, I guess that's possible. It's not something that's carried around in the root system or yeah. in the wood. It really is spread in through the flowers and it can infect, I guess, through um, sort of open wounds or, or the stromata, but it's, that's not the primary vector. The, the vector is, Splashing spores from some oozing wounds that happen at that time of the year or pollinators who are attracted to the ooze from the, the sores and then that take it in and spread it from flower to flower. So tell me a little bit about your bedside manner when you have to show up at a property and you see fire blight really bad on a tree and you've got to break the news that like, hey, if you want to save these other trees that are close by, this one has to go and it has to go now. Uh, direct and truthful is usually the best way. The other thing I like to do is don't just leave it on your word. Um, Davey uh, has good literature that's scientifically based. There's also extension services from Penn State or Ohio State or Cornell or ever all around the country that have research and paint one page on to, to, so people know you're not just, you know, snowing them over and trying to cut the trees down. Um, and then being honest about the costs of the management. You're talking the, uh, the fungicide treatments are hundreds of dollars at a time. You usually need multiple of them. You need to spray before the flower, after the flower. It has to be done every single year. And it, timing is very difficult to get right. 
So, you know, the practicality of it sometimes and the financial uh, headache of it gets people to think, hmm, maybe I should try something else. And, and then the best thing is put your arborist hat on and make suggestions for a replacement for that beautiful spring flowering tree that they've just always loved. It's the sign of spring. You know, what are some different options that are in a different family that aren't going to have these kind of problems? Well, you know, we've talked about this before, too, but I always like to pick your brain a little bit. And of course, the mantra is right plant for the right place. But tell me a couple of your off the beaten path trees again. So, I mean, I've actually just had this conversation. One I've been pushing for the last couple of years is black gums here in Pennsylvania. Um, they're just a native tree, hardwood, pretty hardy, easy, easy going, don't have a lot of problems. And they're not overplanted like red maples. Um, the other thing I actually kind of remembered and stumbled upon is American hornbeam or hop hornbeams. I think what's kind of cool about those is they, they don't hold their leaves in the winter, but they, they get really tan and they kind of like, almost like a beech tree can in, you know, out in the woods can sort of hold. And so it gives a, a, a winter interest, which I always find a little interesting. Um, and again, natives, which I just like bored. You know, better. Does a, does a hop hornbeam have a flower that looks like a hop flower, or am I thinking of another tree? Yeah, no, was, that's that's right. Yeah, they're two different trees. Two, the, the, there's the American hornbeam and the hop hornbeam, but both of them are are ones that I like. Yeah, I saw one on the lake, and I threw uh, my fishing lure that direction, and now the hop hornbeam has the fishing lure. <laughs> yeah. When we, let's go back to black gum because I know it's a favorite of many arborists because of that amazing fall color. What, what size do you see them at? Because there's one at the locally here at the Pittsburgh Botanic Garden that is huge, that is like over 30 feet tall. I guess I don't usually see them that big, but is that how, you know, in, in the native forest, they get that big? Yeah, they're, they are sized in the like maple, um, oak, uh, you know, beach type family. So if native and out in the woods, they can get that large. It's just that they've not been planted ornamentally very much. So you don't see them in yards where they've had the time to get that large, but they absolutely can. I think, you know, if people are sick of the same old, you know, autumn blaze or, you know, October glory maple in everyone's front yard. This is a great option. That's not going to get tulip poplar huge or sycamore messy. Uh, it's, it's just a, t a different thing. And then it'll be a different spot of color, especially in, you know, suburban neighborhoods where things can be really matchy matchy. So when that thing does change in the fall, is it bright or a dark red or what is it? Yeah, more dark red purple from what I've seen. Wow, cool. So there's another disease that I think is kind of like fire blight. It's like a black knot or something. Is that the right term for, for that? Yeah, so it's it's a black knot disease. And it's again, it's not fungal. It's uh, like a vac viral bacteria that kind of work together. But really what it presents as is a black big nodule that looks like it's completely surrounding branches. And it'll be on your smaller branches at the ends, but it will infect back into larger wood. Um, and then from that knot, basically it, it chokes that branch off and then it dies from the knot forward um so i saw like a small orchard and i think it was the pear trees that had it bad i mean can you prune in that situation or if it's really bad it's like the fire blight 
if it's really bad, it's like the fire blight and you need to take it out. And it's actually really hard to prune it out. It's actually, I think, even harder than fire blight because you notice the fire blight because it really flags out on the end of the branches. So you see this hanging clump of brown things and you go, oh, what's that? That's a thing. I should take care of that. The black knot could be really small and you don't notice it till it's really gotten through the tree and then you need to prune below it quite far to get the infection out. And a lot of people make the mistake of like, oh, it's oh, I think I can do it. And they start clipping, clipping, clipping. And they and it, then the next year, it just goes boom and explodes because they've not got it low enough. They've not been sterilizing their tools. They've cut clean branches. And then it's just so much worse than it was. And so if, if you did have a small orchard and only one tree had that black nut, is it the same sort of thing with like firebite? You remove the whole tree to try and save the others. Absolutely. Yeah. And as quick as you can cut it down, pull it out and, and get it away. You know, don't chip it up and leave it close. Get, get the uh, debris as far away as possible or burn it, you know, off site. So this year with my flowering crab apple, uh, it has not defoliated yet where it normally would defo- defoliate. Tell me that fungal disease again, that that happens on crab apples. Yeah, so the very common is apple scab disease. Right. Um, and it, it is similar, different, but in you know a lot of ways culturally similar to a cedar apple rust disease. They're both fungal diseases that invade um, the, these, the, these same family of plants again uh, in the early spring, just as the leaf buds are uh, elongating and starting to open up. And before the cuticle layer, of the leaf is formed. So the wet, you know, harder outer coating of the leaf has got to set yet. Spores land on that, they get attached and then the fungus grows and then it does form that cuticle layer and locks that fungus in. And then those, once that happens, they're infected and um, they won't make it through the summer. They'll defoliate. So the treatment should be like some kind of fungicide before you see signs of damage. Is that the way to do it or yeah the the difference between these apple scab or rust problems is that they are manageable and does not really lead to tree death it can lead to an unhealthy tree because you know they're defoliating early the leaves aren't working at their most highest potential but i've never really seen one just totally kill a tree um so fungicide applications are necessary and do work but again it's right at leaf pop usually two three weeks after then two to three weeks more you want to fertilize so the tree is good and healthy because um, healthy trees can fight this infection off a little better. And culturally, um, one of the, you know, the big things with these diseases is your leaf cleanup needs to be thorough and done before spring. Um, a lot of people wait, and I'm just as guilty, wait till ah, it get, got cold in the winter. It's not going to hurt anything. I'll blow the beds out come spring. You need to do it before things start to leaf out and flower because those old leaves hold the spores, raindrops hit it, splash them back up and you get an um, infection cycle going. The other thing is they, it's a shared disease between the cedar and juniper family with back into the rosacea family and you need to remove one of them. So a lot of times people have like this ugly little blue juniper shrub and it's planted near their crab apple and both look pretty crummy and you're like, well, get rid of that ugly shrub you've cut that disease cycle down and it's a much, it's almost natural. You'll get a, a lot more control over that disease. 
Well, you've already touched on it, but I want to talk again about it. With this tree, the, the, the example in, in my property, you know, it's been here forever. It, it, it defoliates here and there. That is definitely one that would be a great candidate to fertilize. Talk about how you get that fertilizer to the right place in the root zone. I mean, deep root fertilization is the best way to do it. At uh, Davy, we use a product called Arbor Green, and we it is a suspended powder in water, and we shoot it into the ground using an injector um, under hot, you know, pressure with water. So you're not only getting a bit of mild aeration, but you're injecting it in water. We do it recommended about a half gallon every three feet in a grid system under the drip zone line. So the canopies of the trees. And the the other main thing about it is you want it to be as slow release as you can make it. I think Arbor Green is between in our climate and area between and soil type 12 to 14 months. Um, and that way the tree is just naturally absorbing more um, in nat- nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. It helps, and it also can help uh, give better channels to bring in the other micronutrients, iron and manganese and all of that, that that trees need as well. So in this mid-Atlantic area that we work in, what has this season been like as far as diseases are concerned? What have you seen? So we had a very... A pretty mild winter, um, but it was a big cold snap here at, around Christmas. But otherwise, it was pretty mild, and then we had a very dry spring. So where we usually would have a lot of water, a lot of splashing around when things were flowering, it actually was 70 and sunny for, I think it was 20-some days here in Pittsburgh, which is, uh, we maybe had 20-some days of sun the entire year, but in a row is pretty rare. So, um, so I've not seen the disease pressure be outrageous. Um, anthracnose and sycamores have been a little high, but uh, it's the insects this year that's bad. Uh, the, the mild winter and the dryness just really ramped up insect pressure. So I'm going to assume right off the bat, aphids, because all I've been talking to people about is aphids on everything. I actually got a question today where somebody had a Norway maple, had aphids really bad, the ladybugs came and took care of the aphids, but they wondered if they should still spray. And I was saying, well, if you've got ladybugs eating them, they're not going to eat everything. They'll save something for the next generation. And I know you'd have to look at the tree, but a Norway maple with aphids, is that a big deal? Um, you know what? I think it's the location of the Norway maple. If it's out in my yard, I probably wouldn't care. The thing is that aphids um, release a honeydew and that drips. And if it's over your patio and everything turns black the moment after you clean it and it's filthy all the time, that's a whole different, uh, you know, set of circumstances than if it's just out in the yard and the grass is a little sticky or whatever. Um, so I think it's where it is and what they're, I mean, I will say today, not that I haven't seen it before, but, um, here in Pittsburgh spotted lanternfly has gone completely crazy. And I was looking at uh, someone's wisteria vine this morning and they were literally on every single strand, just thick on, on it. And they're, they're going to be gross and problematic here coming up soon too. Yes. I, I think for us here that, that the, when the spotted lantern fly does get to adult stage, that uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. 
Uh, I'm answering the same sort of questions and seeing the same sort of thing. Just certain plants. Uh, but I know they yeah. I know they can attack a lot of plants, but boy, they love grapes. Uh, they've been on my roses, hops, you know. So mm-hmm. as long as they stay off my tomatoes and peppers, I think I'm going to be okay. Yeah, and and you know, ailanthus trees they love, and I mean, they, there's a lot of varieties, but there's always yeah the special ones, and at this point they're just everywhere. I mean, they were crawling up the side of my house last night. Well, let's hope that nature takes uh, charge of this and balances out in the next couple of seasons. Uh, it usually does, but we'll see what happens. Eric, great stuff as always. I sure appreciate your time. And we will be talking to you again on the radio, and I'm sure we'll be back talking to you again here on the podcast. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Doug. Thanks. It's always great to catch up with Eric, that's for sure. Now, tune in every Thursday to the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I am your host, Doug Oster, and do me a big favor. Subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss one of these shows. And next week, I can't wait, it's all about caterpillars, and I think you're going to be very surprised about what we learn in that show. Have an idea for an episode or maybe a comment? Send me an email to podcasts at davy.com. That's P O D C A S T S at D A V E Y.com. And as always, we like to remind you on the Talking Trees podcast trees are the answer.